Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Four Seasons by the Italian Baroque composer Antonio Vivaldi is among the most popular works in the classical repertoire. The piece is a showcase for violinists, and on Wednesday, January 4th, Concertgoers can hear the art history of Atlanta Symphony Concertmaster David Coucheron as soloist and conductor with the orchestra. Later this hour, the violinist will guide us through the highlights in each season of Vivaldi's masterpiece. First, Clotilda is the name of the last known U.S. slave ship which brought 110 captives from Africa to Mobile, Alabama. This ship is the inspiration behind Andre Henderson's new series of paintings, Clotilda, The Final Journey. The exhibition is sponsored by the City of Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, and is on view at Gallery 72 through February 17th. Andre Henderson joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for that introduction, and I am so happy to be back on City Lights talking about my new work, which is I'm really, really excited about. Yes, please tell us. Clotilda is a continuation of your previous work, The Journey, you and I spoke about in 2021. For those who may not be familiar with that series, would you describe The Journey and how Clotilda expands upon those works? Absolutely. The Journey was the first part of the series that I created, actually when I first moved to Atlanta. And that series of paintings is a honoring of all of the captured Africans that were captured for the slave trade. But it also gives a look into the historical context of what actually happened during that period of time. For instance, some pieces have dates, 
1619, 1831, 1776, and so forth, that will have the viewer questioning what those dates are, and we'll have to look back and see historically what happened on those particular dates. So it's 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 an honoring of of that period, and then it takes you through a corridor because both of the series are actually up at Gallery 72. The Journey is in one gallery, and the Clotilda is in the in the corridor next door. So it's it's an experience in which you'll go see the Journey first, and then as you'll go across the corridor and experience the Clotilda, which I call the final journey because it was the last slave ship to touch American shores in 1860 with 110 captured Africans while slavery was illegal. So I felt that I needed to, in my research, I found a lot of things that were written, but I didn't see that there was anything painted to honor those Africans that were actually on that ship. And I might add too that the descendants from that ship want to also form Africatown in Alabama. In 2019, researchers confirmed finding the remains of the Clotilde along the Mobile River in Alabama. Why do you think it took so long to find the vessel? You know, that's an interesting question. Not only that, it, it took a long time, but as we know, there were quite a number of ships that was in that particular area at the time because it was a, a large, uh, it was an area which did a lot of trafficking in Africans in that particular area. And I'm not sure why it took so long, but I think as all things historically start to come to pass, I think it was time for it to be discovered. Mm. In addition to the ghastly fact that it was a slave ship, there's another layer of outrage at it, of outrageousness, I guess, in that trafficking was illegal by that time, by 1860. It was illegal at that time, and a gentleman by the name of Captain William Foster and Timothy Lear made a gentleman's bet. The captain bet Timothy Lear that uh, he could, although trafficking and slavery was illegal in the United States at the particular time, he made a bet that he could still go back to Africa and bring back captured Africans, in which he did in the region of Benin, Africa. And he brought them back in 45 days, and there are 110 of them in the most unbelievable conditions in space that that particular ship had. Oh. Andre, for your research on this project, did you go to Alabama to see the remains? Actually, that is my next trek with the work, and I will be doing that shortly and connecting with the folks out there because I think it's really important to actually bring the work back for which the story is told, but also part of the honoring of these particular pieces. And not only that, but I, I painted these pieces on wood. All of the pieces in the entire show for the Clotilde are painted on wood panels. And some of these panels are literally four feet by eight feet in size. So they're very large. And not only are they large, but they carry a substantial amount of weight. And I was doing that to 
actually reflect the fact that this was reflective of the ship itself. Not only were they painted on wood, but I worked with it. my dear friend who you know, who was on with me last time, Kisik, to actually make the frames, which are actually made out of Georgia pine, uh, which a lot of ships were made out of at that particular time. And I wanted the wood to be burnished. So we literally burnt the wood. The, the frame seemed black, but it's actually a burning of the wood and reflective of what happened with Clotilde and the Mobile River. Metaphor on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the works. Two of the paintings in the series are of an African hiding in the bushes. The first one, looking from the bushes toward the Clotilde sailing away, and the other, looking back at the viewer. Please tell us more about these works. Well, those pieces, one is a woman and child, and the second that you mentioned is a male figure. That painting is called Yama's Deliverance. And there's a descriptive of it about her actually looking at the ship that had already captured her people and is looking at the ship as it begins to pull away from the ocean side. And the description for that piece is the goddess of Yorba, when her people were taken from their shores, Emma went with them, providing solace as they endured the violations of this illicit and forbidding journey. So that's about her seeing them leave. Now the gentleman or her husband behind, not only is he looking over his shoulder, but he's looking to make sure nobody else is coming. And he also in that picture is depicted with a spear for his own defense. So as a tribesman, he is there as a defensive person as well. And, and so I wanted to uh, show that, but not only of his stature, but in his glaze and the look in his eye where you can actually feel him really looking at you intently. Well, that gaze is powerfully felt by the viewer. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the artist Andre Henderson. We're discussing his Gallery 72 exhibition, Clotilda, The Final Journey. What is the significance of the orbs and prayer hands in your paintings? The orbs... I've always used orbs in a number of my pieces, and, and the orbs are reflective of spiritual energy. I believe that we are spirits in human form, and when we leave this human form that we happen to be in at this time, we become almost like a ball of light. But the orbs also act as an ancestral spiritual guide in a way that is there that resembles protection and life and sovereigns. One painting depicts what appears to be an angel underwater holding up the world with other creatures soaring around the orb above the angel. What is the story behind this painting? That painting is called Ascension. 
And that is actually the glue, if I may say, of all the pieces within that this particular series. That is the mythical spiritual context of the ancestors and the celestial bodies that surround them. And it also involves storytelling. If you look closely at that picture, you'll see a number of different images. Um, the more you look, the more you discover. That's why I love these pieces, because you'll see a male and female. You'll see angels. You'll see stars and celestial beings, and you'll see oceans and, and all different types of things you'll discover. And it also involves storytelling from the African mythology point of view of things. So there's a lot of depth and a lot of storytelling in that piece collaboratively. And it's what I envision that although they were captured, these things and these items and these people, these um, energies were still with them, the ones that were on the ship. You described the size of the painting, some eight feet tall. How long did it take you to create this series? Well, I started, it was almost about nine months, almost the birth of a child, literally, uh, maybe a little longer. Each piece at that particular size was, it was almost like creating many worlds within worlds, but also the size of some murals. And I wanted the stature of those pieces to, to really accentuate the story that I was telling. But it was definitely a wonderful task that was taken and, and driven. I always say I was guided by the ancestors, but I totally felt that it was at, at sometimes, to be honest with you, I don't really know how long it took because time kind of stood still as I was painting these because I was in my own creative mode and my creative spirit to do this. Would you talk a little bit more about the collaboration between you and your friend, the woodworking artist, Doug Pisek? Absolutely. Once again, I called Doug and said, hey, Doug, I'm working on these pieces and I'm quite not sure if I want them to be framed because they were so large and wasn't sure how to frame them or if they should be framed or if they should just remain as they are. But as I thought more, I said, okay, I want to frame them. Doug came over to the studio and we both sat and talked about the framing part. And, you know, what I love about collaborating with Doug is that he really he really gets it. He really understands the work that I'm doing, but he understands the story as well. And so when he goes into building a frame, he takes that into account, such as the joints of the particular pieces that he made of the frames they would use in shipbuilding. There are no nails in these frames. There are just grooves in these frames. And you would never know that because they're so beautifully crafted but yet they have this uh, rough and rustic feel to them. So it's always, it's always a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to collaborate together. While reading your artist statement, a few things struck me that I'd hoped you'd talk about now. You wrote, sometimes art hurts. 
words, even to paint it. And you also said, I think paintings do heal. Would you elaborate? Yes, and thank you for that. What I mean by paintings hurt is sometimes it is hard for us to look at such a horrific time in our history as Americans and in particular as African-Americans. But I think it's something that we should address because I think those wounds still need to be healed by all of us. And so that painful part of it is just that. Now, me independently as an artist, I truly feel what I'm painting. And hopefully that comes across in my imagery, but I truly go into a space and place where I actually feel and imagine as much as I possibly can what these captured individuals went through, the trauma, the physical pain, the psychological pain, all of that is wrapped up into these pieces. So I do feel it. But the healing part of that is to actually do it, to get it out, to actually bring it into the world and let other people see that and feel that if they may. And from seeing and feeling it, I believe that's where the healing part comes for me. And I hope it reflects to others and to the viewers who actually have the opportunity to see the work. Atlanta artist Andre Henderson. Clotilda, the final journey, is on view at Gallery 72 through February 17th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Atlanta's Symphony Orchestra concertmaster takes us through the highlights of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The string section of our Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is superb. Thanks in no small part to concertmaster David Kushran. 
David will conduct and perform solos in the January 4th Wednesday concert of the Atlanta Symphony. We'll hear him as soloist in one of the most popular works in the classical repertoire, The Four Seasons by Antonio Vivaldi. David Cushon joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's great to talk to you and be back. The Four Seasons is actually a collection of four violin concertos, and the composer wrote poetry that appears in the score. Would you take us through the piece and describe how Vivaldi captures each time of the year? Yeah, it's actually pretty magical, and it's pretty amazing how he managed to reflect the different uh, bird chirps in the spring. of the cold and the freezing of the winter and I think it's actually quite self-explanatory when you listen to it I think there's no mistake which season that you're currently in it's a monument in the violin repertoire and I can't wait to perform it uh, with my Atlanta Symphony Orchestra colleagues there's a there's a lot of different nature sounds in all of the seasons I think maybe winter might be the most famous because we played a lot during Christmas season, but uh, all of the four seasons are are fantastic. And um, I'm reminded of that sometimes. I'm originally from Norway, where there's a lot more winter than here in Atlanta. But uh, one of the things I do like about Atlanta is that we still have four seasons here. Uh, some places in the world do not have the luxury of changing seasons and seeing that, but we do have that in Atlanta. And I think Atlanta's springs and autumns are especially beautiful. David, summer is not depicted in a favorable way. I get the feeling that Vivaldi would have welcomed what came about, what, 200 years later with air conditioning? I think he would like air conditioning, yes. And I, I wonder if he had written it today with air conditioning, it would sound very different. Yeah, because <laughs> what, what does he convey in summer? I think it's just extremely hot. It can be extremely hot in Italy during the summer season. And I think it was difficult back then. Uh, and that's, you know, they have siesta and all that kind of stuff, but... Yeah, it's, it was very, very hot. And uh, he's complaining about it a little bit, I think, in this piece.
there's something in summer, in this concerto of summer, that makes me want to swat at buzzing flies or mosquitoes. flies or mosquitoes. I think that comes through. Would, would those be tremolos? Yes, that could also be some of the tools that he was using. It's kind of amazingly depicted. I'm sorry he suffered. I'm glad he could depict all of the the languor and the heat and humidity and the searing sun that they were obviously experiencing at the time. Autumn is a favorite time of year for many people. What does the violinist tell us in Vivaldi's setting of the harvest season. I picture leaves falling off. Interestingly, the fall in, in Atlanta to me is one of my favorite seasons, maybe my favorite season. It is mine too. It's so The fall gorgeous. in Norway is my least favorite season. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, Why it's really, that? it's very dark. It's cold, but it's not snow yet. Oh. Yeah, it's actually quite a depressing season. Um, so, and it's long. <laughs> it starts in September and the kind of ends in December when we usually get some snow. That brightens up everything. Indeed, that makes it pretty. But in Atlanta, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I think fall is the most beautiful time here. What do you hear in autumn that Vivaldi is describing so richly? Beautiful colors and leaves falling and peacefulness. Mm. And I think also satisfaction. And I think maybe that's related to harvest. on vivid display in winter. What are examples in this section of the Four Seasons that 
show us Vivaldi as a tone painter? Oh, it starts out. We're doing sopo di cello, which is we're playing with the bows really close to the bridge, and it creates a very icy sound. that this is this is cold and this is freezing and people are shivering huge wind and that's I think depicted also in my 30 second notes very quick uh, passages going on that's kind of wind just like rolling in the shivering again and then we have the the middle movement which is beautiful and it's peaceful and i think i picture being inside and having a hot chocolate or something <laughs> the icy wind and the ice storm outside is passing by but we're uh, we're not affected by it yes <laughs> you are protected from yeah that. we're safe <laughs>
The program begins with the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 3 of Bach and concludes with the Holberg Suite by your Norwegian countryman, Edvard Grieg, all glorious music for strings. On the topic of Norway, David, did I hear that you now have dual citizenship? <laughs> that is correct. So Norway didn't allow dual citizenship until a couple of years ago. So that's why I waited this long to get citizenship in this country. But now I'm able to have both a Norwegian passport and a U.S. passport as well. Well, so we can take equal pride <laughs> in your being one of our own, along with the Norwegians. You're, you're too kind, but uh, I had to take a lot of questions and answer them in an interview. And uh, it was very informative, actually. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Oh, really? Did you have to learn U.S. history? Yeah, I had to learn a bunch of history, and uh, it really helped me understand the country. Atlanta Symphony Concertmaster David Kushran. He'll conduct and perform as soloist with the orchestra on Wednesday, January 4th at 8 p.m. in Symphony Hall. The concert also will be performed on Saturday afternoon at Spivey Hall. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. There's an old Italian proverb about dying that roughly translated means once the game is over, the king and the pawn go back to the same box. Well, what if death was no longer the great equalizer we know it to be? And instead, with the right amount of science and resources, we could choose another path. That's the future. Author and Atlanta native Caitlin Monroe Howes creates in her debut novel, The Awoken. Her book portrays a world where cryogenics has advanced and resurrection is possible. But with this second chance at life comes a bounty of complications. When the author spoke with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes in August, Howes began with a brief synopsis of her book. Alabine Rivers is 23 years old and she gets a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so she she's in the, you know, at the throes of true love you know she's she has the absolute love of her life max green um, by her side and she tries to fight the cancer but unfortunately is unsuccessful and she dies in 2020 but before she dies she makes the sort of radical decision to cryogenically preserve her body as a last chance for the hope of a life and she does this without knowing that science will one day be able to resurrect bodies she just sort of does this with the hope that that one day they it will be possible and so she cryogenically preserves her body. And then a hundred years later, after science has figured out how to resurrect uh, human bodies, 
she comes back to life and she comes back to life in a, in a very different world than she was expecting. In this world, it is actually illegal to be a resurrected human. And she's resurrected by this group of this kind of underground militia civil rights organization who are trying to fight for the rights of people like her, people called the Awoken. She finds out a lot of things that I won't, I don't want to give away, but she, she does a lot to try and fight for the rights of people like her. Very cool. And your inspiration and desire to tell this story comes from a place of real life experience. Will you share what happened to you when you were 17 years old? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, the the first line of the novel is I was 23 years old when I when I died. And that line or a version of that line, I actually wrote when I was 17. And I wrote the line in my in my diary, I wrote I was 17 years old when I died. And I wrote that right after I had a pretty drastic car accident and I, and I was dead. I, my heart stopped beating by the time the ambulance arrived, I had no signs of life. And that experience has very much haunted me as as you can imagine it would, that that trauma has haunted me, you know, for the last almost two decades. But what's really interesting about this novel is I started writing it, not, not realizing that that's where I was. That's the place that I was writing it from. You know, I, I started writing this novel because I because I make documentaries and I had just come off making this amazing documentary for MTV following this group of at-risk and homeless trans youth in Los Angeles. And the experience making that documentary, I just I was so angry about how you know by getting to know these these great kids and just an experience of walking down the street with them, I saw how my life based on my perceived identity was just more unfortunately valued by society it was protected you know people would say horrible things to these kids who were great and I didn't have the same kind of bias against me and that made me so so angry that we we live in a society even in Los Angeles where people could have that kind of vitriol towards towards someone just because of who they are so writing this novel came initially from that for me wanting to unpack this need that we have as humans to to really other and condemn people who we feel are other than us. So that's sort of where my head came at it. But it wasn't until I read the first draft of my novel that I realized that I was actually tapping into this trauma that I had when I was 17. You know, when I died, I I had this very uh, visceral experience of nothingness. It's something that I can still feel. It's something that I can picture in my head. And that nothingness kind of became the, the antagonist on the page in my novel. You know, all these experiences were there on in my novel. And I didn't even realize that until I had gone back and read it. And, and that was when I realized, oh, this first line actually came from this diary I had when I was 17 years old. So it's sort of interesting. I always find how writing is such a great therapeutic experience, not only for the writer, but then obviously, hopefully for the readers as well. Absolutely. And so you are a storyteller by profession as an Mm -hmm. Emmy nominated, you won't say it, I will documentarian. (laughs) So it's easy to understand, obviously, where your interest in life after death comes from. But why did you choose to write a novel? Why not create a documentary about this instead? Well, this story has actually lived with me in kind of a, a variety of different ways. And I'm a screenwriter also as, as part of my background. And I didn't know this was a novel at first. At first, I started kind of writing it in these very different formats. And then it just, the way it came out, it was it was a novel and I couldn't really deny it anymore. You know, I, I wasn't 
at the time when I started writing this, I wasn't an author. I've always been a very avid reader. You know, books have been such a huge part of my life. But for me, I was I was this, you know, visual storyteller is what I sort of always told anybody who would listen. But yeah, it was just so clear to me that this was this was a novel. And so I, I began writing it. And I that was sort of right before the the pandemic hit. And then I had I had my son, which obviously threw in all these complications. I had my first child, which it would became very difficult to then write about, you know, death and dying and this experience. You know, I was uncovering this trauma from when I was 17 to do that while having a newborn in my arms was also provided its uh, its challenges. But yeah, for me, it was just it was this story that needed to be unpacked, I think, in literature, because I feel like novels can do things to us and for us in a way that other formats can't. Yeah, novels definitely give us the option to take a pause whenever mm. we need it versus when the storyteller mm-hmm. is ready. And there are some themes in this book that definitely had me going, all right, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, process that for a minute or two and come back. When did your interest in cryogenics begin? And are you interested in the process at this point in your life for your own future? That's a great question and one that I ask myself on a regular basis. So after after my car accident, after my experience with death, I became obsessed with life extension science and I've been following it pretty regularly over, you know, since that point. And it's pretty amazing where we're at. I mean, we're very close to to these kind of huge breakthroughs in these various researches that are coming out. And cryogenics has always been the one that's been the most interesting to me because that's sort of been the one that's been around for the longest. You know, we all have this this sort of legend idea that, you know, Walt Disney froze his brain or something. But mm. it is what it is, what's fa- fascinating about it is it's something that's not the science fiction. You know, that's something you can do today. There's a company you can call up. Anybody can call up and sign a contract that you're going to have your your body preserved after death. So what's fascinating about that to me is, is it exists today. And what's great about it too, is we already know how to resurrect some pretty complicated mammals. I think it can do rats. There's some new studies coming out all the time of, of people using cryogenics in various medical ways. So I, I think the obsession started when I was very young, but it's just been fascinating to watch how it's evolved and changed over the years. And I think this is a real question that we're all going to have to answer pretty soon for ourselves is, you know, what, what is life and what do we do when we can all of a sudden, you know, play this, you know, have this godlike power and decide who, who gets to die and when do we get to die, if at all. To answer the second part of your question, I don't know if I would. I, I when I was seventeen, I I thought I would absolutely, as soon as it was as it was available, if I could afford it, I would absolutely preserve my body. But it's so interesting as I've as I've gotten older, I sort of wondered if that would still be the case. You know, I think there's something about valuing life when you know there's an end to it. But then again, you know, that that sort of nothingness that I saw still still haunts me. And can we really accept that this is our only existence and we don't get anything after that? Yeah. Within the first pages of your prologue, you explain that above all else, this is a story about love. And then you rock it off into the world of science fiction. Why did you want to anchor this futuristic book with a love story? Well, I think, well, first of all, I'm just a sucker for a good love story. You know, I whenever, <laughs> whenever I read a book, that's what that's what keeps me turning the page. But for me, I think that's actually has a lot to do with with my son. You know, I like I said, it was sort of hard being this new mom writing about death. And so the book kind of evolved and changed quite a bit after I became a mom. 
And the love story became a huge, huge component of it because I think the love story for me is this example of hope, right? And so even in death, even in, you know, tragedy, I think we as humans, what's what makes us so special is that we have hope. And that's kind of what drives us along, you know, towards the end of the book, there's a quote that says, you know, this is a story about love, but now, you know, it's a story about all kinds of love. So while, while you start the book kind of thinking, this is just about, a, you know, a traditional love story between these, these two people, it actually becomes this larger love story about, about how we love each other as humans and how we can empathize with one another and treat each other, hopefully as sort of each other's loved ones. Yeah. And those are the parts in the book that really actually got me choked up. When your main character has a minute to breathe and calm down and maybe shower for the first time in forever, the woman who is assisting her doesn't say a word the entire time. But when she's finished getting dressed, she just gives her a hug and walks away. That just choked me up. That's actually that moment was really inspired by my postpartum after after I had a pretty multiple day traumatic labor. And, Mm. and I had this one nurse who was just kind of, I felt like as a woman, just there for me, just kind of didn't talk much, just kind of helped me as she needed to. And and she was a very big inspiration for that, for that moment. Mm, It felt very real. Another element that you add into the story to help move it along and to help serve as a great way to go back in time is lucid dreaming and lucid memories. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a lucid memory? I've never had a lucid memory, but I've had that, that I've had lucid dreaming my, my whole childhood. I had these, I think now they're called like night terrors, but where I'd have these, these dreams where I'd be stuck and I knew I was dreaming, but at the same time, it almost made it more real to me. Like I could feel everything and I couldn't get out of it. I felt very trapped. It was hard for me to deal with that as a child, but those experiences are, are what influenced them. These, yeah, these lucid memories. So one of the facts of coming back to life is your as your brain tries to process it in this novel you you kind of viscerally experience your first life again it's not that you have memories of it that flash in your head you actually kind of go back and relive these moments and then as you go through the novel you actually realize that sometimes these memories like memories always are they're not quite always reliable they sometimes twist and turn are and are impacted by by other things beyond the truth so that was a really fun tool to use in terms of telling the story and really kind of revealing how how traumatic it was for Alibine to to try and piece her two lives together. Indeed. Another way you engage your readers with important world building history is through what presents like found paper, scraps of newspapers, notes and the like. Why did you choose to present the past and sometimes the future in this way? So these found documents is, is exactly what I call them. The found documents were were just a blast to write to. You know, I love playing with medium and playing with different aspects of storytelling. So, for example, I got to write a dissent from from a Supreme Court justice on this Supreme Court case that is pretty pivotal to the to the story. So that was really fun to be able to step out and write that. And so I use these as as a tool to to tell the story and to give you this information in in different and new ways. And then by the end of the book, I won't give anything away, but by the end of the book, it kind of it ties in and you understand why all of these these found documents are have been throughout the story. 
you know, the book has some dystopian elements to it, one of which is a thoroughly divided country of which your characters are located within the area governed by the UA or United America, as they're called at the time. What type of real world inspiration did you draw from to create the UA? I'm almost afraid to ask. Well, when I was world building, the the thing that was most important to me, you know, as I said, this came from from a very real place, a very real experience that I had in our world. So I didn't want to create this sort of Blade Runner-esque future dystopian place where, you know, it doesn't seem recognizable. I wanted to create a, a world that was just slightly slightly off from our own, but quite, but quite similar. So I wanted to make sure that there weren't, you know, flying cars everywhere and massive skyscraper, you know, it's, it's, it feels like our, our world. That was the kernel that I started with is how, what do I do to create this, this world that feels so much like our own. And then from there, I took a lot of the current issues that we were facing right now. And I kind of expanded on them. A lot of the discussions we're having around like identity politics and all of these things, these sort of hot button issues. I wanted to explore that and really see like, okay, well, what, let's watch this. Let's see how this goes to the end of the line. And what is that? What kind of country does that turn us into? And that's how I came up with the country that Alabine wakes into, which is the United America. The area that we're in, in Georgia, Chicago, New York, all of that falls into your United America. But there's areas to the West that don't. And that was the one thing that I I'd like during the novel, I kept wanting to know more <laughs> about what was life like for the people who weren't in the United America? Yeah. So in the, what you find out in the novel is that the the country, as we know it today, America has split and the Western states have formed their own country. And then the Eastern states have become United America, you know, and that, that again came from a lot of, you know, I live both in Atlanta and Los Angeles and seeing the divide in the country, seeing how people talk about the country in LA versus how people talk about the country on the East coast. I found that kind of dichotomy really fascinating. And I, that's the, what I explored in terms of inventing this this civil war that happened that that ended up splitting the country. How did you feel when you were writing some of those parallels? Yeah, I think, you know, the questions that I really started in my mind writing this book were, were sort of, again, like I said, we were having these questions in our country, these kind of societal questions, you know, how do we value a life? But I think even more recently, you know, with the recent overturn of Roe, I think we're really questioning you know, access to medical procedures, and which is very much the the question that's driving the awoken, you know, science can give us all these fantastic and great things. But then at some point, we are saying this is too far, we, we can't do this, we shouldn't, this shouldn't be allowed. So those are all the questions that I'm asking. And I, I think at what point do we sort of sacrifice our humanity and prohibiting and trying to limit access to these things? How does that reflect on us as, as humans as well? I think that's a big question in the book that it, that I, I hopefully will help people ask these questions in real life today as well. Yeah, because you bring up where is there a line to be drawn if there is a line to be drawn and then who gets to decide what that line is? I think that's the big question is who who gets to decide? I mean, again, talking about life extension science, you know, like I said, there's these big breakthroughs, but those breakthroughs are really only going to be available for a long time to the wealthiest of our society. So what does that mean when when the billionaires of Silicon Valley get to live until they're 500 or 1,000 and get to keep being you know, frozen and brought back to life? And meanwhile, all of the people who are not privileged enough to have those kinds of resources, they have to now have 
you know, die like at, like we always have, you know, what if once that equalizer is taken away, once no longer everyone dies, what does that mean for us? So I, I think that, again, these are all these questions that as science continues, we have to start asking ourselves these questions. And for me, science fiction is always the best place to ask these questions, right? It's that you get a fun story along the way while asking some of these deeper questions. So that's what I was trying to do in this book. Author Caitlin Monroe Howes. Her new novel, The Awoken, is available now. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll listen back to one of my favorite interviews of this year, my conversation with comedian Hari Kondabolu. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.